Welcome to the Performance Nutrition Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bugs. Hey everyone, Season 4 of the Performance Nutrition Podcast, bringing you evidence-based insights from world-leading experts to take your nutrition game to the next level. I am really excited today, folks, to be talking with Dr. Patrick O'Halloran, PhD Clinical Research Fellow at the University of Birmingham, a medical doctor and a researcher in concussion diagnosis and management. In today's discussion with Patrick, he'll touch on the highly variable recovery timeline from concussion in athletes in the general population. We'll talk about field-based assessments for athletes suffering from head trauma, as well as if all sports should apply universal guidelines for concussion diagnosis. From there, Patrick will talk about his research in acute biomarkers for diagnosing concussions on the field, on the pitch. How much extra benefit you might get from sport to sport when applying such point-of-care testing. And, of course, we'll also dive into things like medications that can be used for concussion recovery support, the application of novel supplements like CBD, exogenous ketones, and the like. Really fascinating discussion here with Patrick. I hope you enjoy it. And of course, this episode is sponsored by Athlete Evolution, performance nutrition education for athletes, coaches, and practitioners. The first edition of our Performance Nutrition Foundations kicked off this past November. It was sold out, great success. Practitioners from 12 different countries around the world. So big thank you to all those who participated. Our next cohort, will be released January 10th, 2021. So if you'd like to sign up, head over to athleteevolution.org. That's athleteevolution.org. Sign up to the presale list and there's some nice discounts for the first few spots there as well. So again, if you're a strength coach, athlete, nutritionist, personal trainer, practitioner, and you want to upgrade your performance nutrition skills and earn some continuing education credits along the way, then definitely check that out. Fantastic. Let's do this. Season four, episode 19 with Dr. Patrick O'Halloran. Enjoy. Patrick, thanks so much for taking the time today. No, thank you very much for having me. Well, listen, could we kick off this conversation here today with maybe you telling folks a little bit more about your background and how you got involved in concussion research? Absolutely. Um, so I am UK based, uh, I'm a medical doctor. My background was as a family doctor, a general practitioner. And then um, I started to train as a specialist in sports medicine. Um, and through that, the uh, sort of sports that I mostly was working in were, were rugby and soccer. So I got to develop an interest in concussion just through practicality of managing them and seeing sure. them on a regular basis. So I started to get interested in that. And uh, the, the uh, region where I was working in Birmingham um, has a, a good amount of expertise and interest in, in head trauma and had this really exciting opportunity to uh, undertake a PhD looking at some new developments in the diagnosis of concussion. Incredible. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, 
it's such a hot topic these days in the general population and of course in sport whether we contact sports rugby american football ice hockey um you know before we dive into all that you know how do we really define a, a concussion or a mild traumatic brain injury and and what are the rates that we see in the general population compared to let's say athletes so in terms of the the actual definition of it it's really interesting that um historically it's kind of come from two different points of view so some of the efforts to define it have come from sport and some of the efforts to define it have come more from emergency departments or from um, neurosurgeons from from brain trauma surgeons mm -hmm. and so that's really reflected in which uh, which kind of camp you you subscribe to will affect what you think a concussion is if you follow so absolutely if, if you're kind of coming from sport then the concussion in sport group um, defines it as basically the the um, application of force to the brain whether that's directly or indirectly which results in a functional disturbance as opposed to a structural injury to the brain you know nothing's broken but yep. it doesn't work quite so well um, and that's manifested then in a pretty wide range of symptoms that can be a bit vague and can take a bit of time to develop if you're coming at it more from an emergency department point of view then you think more in terms of um, loss of consciousness uh, memory difficulties after a head injury and that kind of thing so i think for for this kind of setting force is applied to the brain one way or another and that results in a whole host of different symptoms um, that can make you feel a bit rotten but crucially that can take some time to develop so just because they're not there right away doesn't mean that a concussion hasn't occurred absolutely when we look at athletes who have perhaps sustained a head trauma you know how long does it take potentially for some of these symptoms to to come to light and and you know within that typical sort of two-week time frame that we think about how, you know what percentage of, of individuals of athletes are going to actually be you know symptom free after that period so in terms of that question around how long does it take for symptoms to manifest there's a there's a good deal of variation so some you know for some people it's really evident if, if you're at the pit side you see an injury and, and it's if there are very obvious signs that someone's lost consciousness you're like well that's it I've, I've made my mind up but weirdly even those people can regain consciousness straight away and feel pretty normal um meanwhile other people will have you know a little bit of something that's very transient after a a big collision or, or something like that and then perhaps it'll it'll only be the next morning or, or uh, the next day that they they really start to feel it and it's difficult to tell whether that should have any bearing on how we manage people if, if that's you know kind of an important factor in what's going to happen to them um, but definitely it, it really underscores the point that in order for us to make sure that we're not missing concussions we should kind of not take the diagnosis off the table until someone's had a chance to have a good night's sleep and, and we can catch up with them the next day um, or, or even the day after. Um, and you, you asked about uh, how long does it take for people to be symptom free, which is a really interesting question. The best kind of evidence that we have out there would suggest that the the vast majority you know more than nine out of ten are going to be symptom free at at, two, at the end of two weeks and that's the reason for that that kind of guideline for the general public to say two weeks of relative you know 
relative rest and relative shutdown and then start your graded return to play after that. But it's interesting that in the elites um, end of, of soccer and rugby, they've kind of gone for a, a shorter um, mandatory rest period if if there's a lot of monitoring of, of athletes and things like that in those settings. Um, so that's, that's an, an interesting kind of challenge for one sport to have two different kind of levels of, of advice depending on on the resources that are available i think it's hard for for the general public to to keep up um with what's advised yeah absolutely and patrick can you if we circle back can you walk us through what that might look like on you know pitch side imagine you know rugby game player takes a hit you know we suppose it could be a concussion you know what type of assessments then are going on you know on the sidelines or, or back in the training room that occur is it immediately after as, as you mentioned is there you know the next day follow-ups how does that play out so it depends a little bit on the sport and on the rules of the sport um i don't want to get too like philosophical about it but the, the if you imagine all the sports subscribe to the same definition that we talked about um at the beginning but how they've chosen to put those into practice to suit the rules of their game and the resources they have that that's the bit that can vary so yeah if you think about maybe um soccer and fifa's kind of approach to it what they would suggest is that if if any player um has an injury that you think could be a concussion you go on and assess them on the pitch um, and you have a limited amount of time to do that and then if you still can't rule out the diagnosis of concussion then you take them off you substitute them Mm -hmm. and then you assess them um at the end of the game with a tool like the SCAP-5, which um, you might be familiar with in in terms of concussion diagnosis Mm -hmm. and concussion assessment. And that contrasts with, say, a sport like rugby union, where what they have chosen to do at the elite end is to have uh, a facility for a player to be temporarily removed and assessed for a slightly longer period of time off the pitch uh, and use that as as a more detailed i guess screening tool to say do i think there's not been a concussion here and the player can continue or actually do i think that i can't rule it out and so i'll keep them off um and if you have a look at it uh, the resources that are available about the world rugby head injury assessment process one of the really great things that that process includes is the fact that you have to have a mandatory evaluation then at, at the end of the game and also 36 to 48 hours later, really emphasising that point that you can't rule out concussion completely until you've um, you've looked for it a little bit uh, a few days afterwards. And is that type of process, you know, if you could wave a magic wand across all the sports, as you mentioned, trying to have sort of a um, an umbrella, um, you know, guidelines that, would, that all the sports would follow, would that be... You know, something that would be you know, a key thing to be implementing. That's opinion? a really, that's a really good question because still, then, if you look at something like NFL, what they have suggested is having an independent doctor to evaluate the players as a as a kind of a additional thing on top of that. And I think it really depends on what what the the kind of mechanics and practicalities are in your sport. So, if you think about rugby union you have sometimes three or four collision you know events going on at the same time and 
there's only one of you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you can only kind of see so much and watch so much. Yeah, exactly. So having the facility to have, um, to remove a player in check, if you kind of haven't got a good view of the incident or if you're unsure, is, is really valuable. For something like soccer, where by and large, if, if someone hits their head, um, it's the you know play stops basically. It's you're following the ball. Mm-hmm. The ball is where the collision is. Play is going to stop, and then you know you're going to have the opportunity to assess the player. So you kind of think, well, if you had if you applied the same rules across all of them, you'd have standardisation. But perhaps you might not improve your capture of concussions that much in sports where the mechanics are just kind of different. Mm-hmm. Having said that, I would definitely say that. All sports, certainly at the elite end, mandating a, a, um, an assessment at you know one or two days after the event um, would be really valuable in terms of making sure that you're not missing concussions that present late. Um, because quite often, if you don't ask about it, if you don't look for it, then players might feel quite happy to return to training because you know, they're concerned about their, their position in the team or, or, or what have you. Absolutely. I guess easy to dismiss too some of these more vague symptoms or symptoms that, you know, one could sort of excuse to be other things if, if you know, as to your point, if they're looking to get it back on the pitch, looking to get back in the team, you know, that that's that's quite uh, natural for that to happen, isn't it? Totally. And, and players will often put the, kind of put the best interests of the team ahead of their own best interest because they're you know they're driven and motivated and that's how they get to be where they are um and almost there's a bit of a confirmation bias thing there that oh well i think that i i I did actually feel a bit off before i came to the game or i ate something funny or i haven't had as much to drink today so it's probably that Hmm. and those those symptoms kind of get can get dismissed so having that facility to to um, make the, the serial assessment of players routine, I think would be really valuable in, in making sure that there's less pressure on players to kind of bring it to the attention of medical staff. Yeah, I mean, excellent point. And of course, obviously, as you mentioned, the challenge here is with diagnosis, and of course, especially in the acute time frame. And, you know, you've done some extensive research in this area. Can you walk listeners through you know, some of your earlier work and, and what you guys were trying to uncover and, and how these acute biomarkers might might serve the, the athletes, the sport and the medical staff to be able to really, you know, get the best outcomes for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of the the what we've talked about, I think we've made it sound pretty easy to pick up concussion <laughs> yeah. and diagnose it. Nothing um, to it. Yeah, it's just so simple, uh, which is kind of doing a bit of a disservice. Like sometimes, you know, it is straightforward because someone's been knocked out or, or um, you, you know, they're, they're telling you like I feel absolutely dreadful um, and I don't know where I am. But in quite a lot of cases, you know, the symptoms can gray. be a bit, Yeah, the symptoms can be vague and they can take time to develop and, and people aren't hiding any symptoms they're just not sure you know and and fair enough so there's a big interest in the whole of the kind of concussion field at looking in looking for an objective biomarker 
um, of concussion. So maybe the player doesn't want to come off or maybe the player doesn't recognise that they've got symptoms or maybe the player genuinely does not have symptoms yet, but they're going to get them in 24 hours. If you had something that reduces the subjectivity um, and just makes it black and white, then that would be tremendous and a big improvement in terms of player safety, not just in in, in sport, but also in life as well, right? In life, like you know, people hit their head and and uh, present to emergency departments, or or you know, sometimes if they had a, have an unwitnessed injury, they don't present to anyone, but they just feel rotten for a few days, and they don't know what to do about it. So, what um, what our team was looking to do was to see whether we could work with uh, the World Rugby Head Injury Assessment process as it's applied in in elite rugby in England and collect saliva samples from players going through that process to see if we could identify salivary biomarkers of concussion. Um, The reasons for looking in saliva are that it's a really practical and accessible fluid mm-hmm. for settings like field-based like field and, and that kind of thing so you, you don't need to have a phlebotomist or or sharps equipment and stuff like that um and the the kind of background to it you know like it, that wasn't the only reason for looking in saliva what we were looking for um were markers called micro rnas which may or may not be familiar to 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 your listeners. Yeah, go ahead and give us a you know define it and be great. So, micro RNAs are, as the name suggests, really small bits of RNA, and they're a, a they're not a new class of signaling molecule. But the technology to look at them and study them at, at, on a big scale hasn't really been around for that long. So. At the moment, we're seeing a real boom in, in people looking at them because basically they can and they haven't yeah. been able to do before. And what they do um, in the body is they regulate the expression of proteins. So they will bind onto the bit of the cell that's putting the protein together, and most often they'll silence that process. So they'll, they'll stop the production of a protein. So it's a little bit like you know, our DNA contains the, the recipe, the instructions for producing proteins that we need for function. And then micro RNAs fine tune that process. So little subtle changes that we need to um, kind of maintain normal function. And because there are so many of them, there are, you know, thousands and thousands of different micro RNAs, and each one can have a lot of different functions, and each different protein can be affected by a lot of different microRNAs. It, it's a, a little bit of a, um, a speculative exercise to try and see, can we see patterns that... Yeah, will, what's doing what, right, in terms of the influence and... Exactly. Can we see patterns that will signify injury? So what the team that I worked with at the University of Birmingham looked at initially was to see whether microRNAs in blood could distinguish different severities of traumatic brain injury in road traffic collision victims. And that work demonstrated that, yes, um, there are patterns of markers which are different in people with more severe brain injury and less severe brain injury. But obviously, as we discussed, blood isn't the perfect fluid. So 
then we tried to look and see in saliva in patients coming out out to our concussion clinic could we see differences in the concussed ones and in some healthy controls in their salivary microRNAs and that was successful also in showing yes there are different patterns of expression in these people so that was the the kind of reasoning behind doing a big study involving premiership rugby and championship rugby in in England and the RFU to say okay let's collect a lot of saliva from um, a lot of players going through the head injury assessment process and see if we can pick up specific changes I'm conscious that I may not be making any sense is this no this is this is great I think everyone's going to be on the same page and uh, you know it is you know again in, in sport whether it's ice hockey whether it's American football we see obviously in in soccer what the rest of the world calls football um you know the, the the rates are seemingly on the rise and in the general population as well and so obviously this a point of care testing where we you know for medical professionals like yourself and performance staff to be able to get a real-time um assessment of where things are headed i mean that's that's invaluable so in terms of you know the players how many players did you end up collecting and and, and walk us through uh what you guys uncovered yeah so so we had a really terrific response from the teams and from the players that we worked with and, you know, as well as the team at the University of Birmingham who worked on this and, and the RFU, I, I have to say I can't thank enough all of the, the teams and players in England who who, um, who helped us with this because they were absolutely fantastic. And we were able to recruit um, about uh, just over a thousand players to the study. Incredible. Um, and then from that, uh, we got um, about 150 concussion samples from about 150 concussions over over the course of the the two years that well the three years rather that, that we were running it. Um, the coronavirus kind of brought things to a <laughs> bit of a halt, premature halt. <laughs> Worldwide pandemic threw a little wrench in there. Yeah, that's it. And we had a, an uncomfortable moment where we said, oh, coronavirus is an RNA virus and we're doing everything we can to protect the RNA. So maybe we might want to put these in the fridge for a little bit and come back to them later. Yeah, um, yeah exactly. Yeah. But, so how, how we set the study out was we, we collected samples um, at baseline. We collected samples from players who were our control players who had just played a game. So they've played elite rugby. We know that they've had a degree of sub-concussive you know, trauma in what they've been doing. And we collected samples from control players who had musculoskeletal injuries. Um, so they had you know, a, a sprain or a muscle tear or, or a fracture that caused them to have to come out of the game. And so by looking at differences between the samples we got from athletes with concussion and those control samples, we, we got a bit of a proof of concept that yes, you know, there are differences in salivary microRNA expression that you're seeing because someone has concussion. It's not just because they've been through, you know, really hard physical work. It's not just because they've had um, it's some kind of, of trauma to their body. It, it does seem to be a different pattern um, when it's brain trauma. And so that was really um you know uh encouraging pretty exciting really exciting finding but then we were able to follow that up and to look at um the group of people who went through the head injury assessment process and concussion was ruled out 
and the group of people who went through the head injury process and were diagnosed with concussion, which is probably like the, the most relevant thing you want to know because those are the people you're actually going to use your test in. Yeah, precisely. Sometimes we have these sorts of conversations where we look over um, studies that have been done in the field and often the comparison is to people who have, you know, orthopedic injuries and that's really useful but you think I, i'd never have a problem working out if someone's yeah, exactly. you know, leg pain <laughs> yeah real t- real time scenarios it's like yeah. this is not an issue with the exactly yeah. like i i don't need to if he's got leg pain i, I don't need to I don't need that. a special test so yeah and, and so in that comparison between you know the the concussed group and the concussion ruled out group again it demonstrated that there were differences in expression between those two groups um, and that you could construct a model to to kind of separate them out. So we, we're hoping that um, in the next few months we'll have the, the final version of the paper accepted and and, um, and ready to to um, to go into print. So that's that's kind of where we are with it at the moment. That's incredible. And with turnaround time on a test like that, uh, you know, Patrick, once you administer the the saliva test to the athlete and then, you know, it goes back to the lab where you guys process it, how long is that taking then for the the medical staff or the performance staff to then get that result? Yeah. So that's the, that's the next challenge. Um, Well, the, the, you know, the first next challenge is to, to replicate our findings and, and, uh, um, you know, ensure that we're seeing a consistent signal uh, and refine that. And then the next challenge is to figure out how do we get this in the hands of clinicians in a, in a way that's going to work and get it to to patients. So certainly one way of doing that is to have a lab-based test that gets sent off and, uh, and then a result comes back. And, and the turnaround for that would probably be around 48 hours mm-hmm. um, in terms of you know, fr- from the time that it's taken and sent off, and the time it comes back. But the real kind of holy grail, as it were, is is to try and produce something that works for a point of care device. Instant. Um, yeah, that instant or, or you know within uh, within half an hour, within an hour, and you know bizarrely, um, coronavirus may actually be kind of helpful in that respect because there's a lot of groups and a lot of work being done to try and generate quick covid tests that would use pretty similar technology to, oh, wow. to what you need so it may be that that's one thing that really pushes this along in terms of getting it there but you can imagine like if, if this is a test which you have to wait 48 hours for or, or um you know it takes a, a couple of days to come back definitely there's a use for that in the context of your maybe your community athletes who, who otherwise are going to have to be out for two weeks um, or well, three weeks altogether. Um, but if it's something which is instant and there's a point of care, then you think the applications for that are much, much bigger. Um, and the adoption of it, you know, people being willing to consider a change in their practice from um, using the SCAT only to, to using the SCAT supported by this would be really uh, much more significant. And likewise, it's important to, to recognize that we've we've been comparing um, to the, the gold standard of the head injury assessment process in, in rugby, which there are minimum standards in terms of how many camera angles you need to have and, and how um, much access to video replay you've got. Mm-hmm. There are four doctors present on a match day and um, 
or physiotherapists. And the whole process takes about 48 hours. So if we can demonstrate that something as simple as a saliva test performs somewhere near as good as that, then in settings where you've got your kind of volunteer first aider and that's it on the side of the pitch, that would be a really big step forward in terms of safety. Yeah, that's incredible. And uh, Patrick, when we look across potentially other sports, again, American football, ice hockey with, you know, this type of test, you know, if replicable and of course investigated in in other sports, is that something that would be, you know, administrable as well in, in these other sports or to your point, does the nature of the sport change that application a little bit? No, I think, I think that, uh, the test itself you know, you, you, you once you have it at the stage that you know you, you've got it in one form or another, you can administer administer that across a whole load of sports. Mm-hmm. Um, really, that that side of things doesn't make a difference. But the bit that makes the difference is uh, how much extra benefit you get. So, if you imagine if we were to to apply this to say elite rugby maybe we wouldn't catch that many more concussions because their processes are already pretty good. But if we we were to apply it to, you know, youth ice hockey where there's less provision, maybe that's going to result in you catching a lot more concussions. So, you know, it's going to appear to be a lot more effective. Um, Does that make sense? Absolutely. I imagine a lot of coaches and parents and whatnot out there would be obviously be thrilled because you know we see rates increasing in, in youth sport and of course as you mentioned there's there's just not a lot of uh, obviously medical sport in a lot of these scenarios and so being able to put, you know put your finger on what's exactly going on would obviously be a major a major turning point and you know for listeners uh, you know listening in here if you're on that sideline let's go back to the rugby you know scenario where you're trying to you got a player who's who's had a head you know, blow to the head, and you're trying to determine which direction to go. You know, assuming we have a, you know, the, t- the test is validated, and we have a positive test. Can you just walk, you know, listeners through which how that would change the the treatment then for a player, and, and what what they would go through uh, in terms of that recovery process? Yeah, that's hmm, that's an interesting one. Um, so, if we think about how. In terms of, of our understanding at the moment and how it might kind of pan out, it would be um, a uh, an adjunct to a setting where you've got a healthcare professional who can evaluate the player. And in settings where there's no um, healthcare professional, you know, if we were to kind of imagine that we're uh, a little way down the track, it, that may be something which replaces an assessment altogether because there's no one there to do the the mm-hmm. assessment. One thing that we're trying to establish now in the further research that we're doing is to figure out, well, what happens next? Um, so what can we take from the measurement of these, these markers or, or different markers to understand, um, can we advise on when someone has recovered? Um, And can we advise on what sort of symptoms someone's likely to get? And so therefore, what kind of treatment might they um, respond well to? So one of probably the most exciting areas, I think, in terms of concussion research is on the active management of symptoms uh, with some amazing work being done uh, on particular symptom 
sort of sub subsets of symptoms and on you know managing athletes actively and and non-athletes uh, as a whole so what would be really cool is if we could contribute to that and say well there's a you know x percentage chance that this athlete is going to suffer with these problems therefore get in with that targeted rehab early um, and you'll see them do better and likewise we're unsure but potentially we may be able to get to um, provide some information on predicting that you know this is someone who's going to take this long to recover or this is someone who's who's going to have a more complicated recovery and so therefore needs wow. maybe additional follow-up or additional care but th- those are those are kind of questions we're trying to figure out answers to absolutely i mean it's fascinating fascinating stuff and patrick when we look across you know the broader network of of other you know tests out there or other groups that are trying to you know assess for you know head trauma and similarly uh, acute diagnosis are there are there other you know types of tests or other things that are being investigated in that realm or on the you know or even on the recovery side that that are that are out there at the moment yeah there are a, f- a few things kind of going on and the a similar kind of conversation is happening with with other biomarkers in the field as well to look and say you know um say for example biomarkers in blood if if we can use it for diagnosis can we use an understanding of how quickly it normalizes or when it normalizes to help guide us with that um there are some elements of uh mri brain which are are kind of feeding into that as well so some studies that have looked at um a particular way of imaging the brain called spectroscopy which looks at um, MRI evidence of m- metabolic activity in the brain effectively to, to kind of give an idea of when every metabolic recovery has, has happened and w- when it's still kind of incomplete. And that's a, a similar sort of concept to say, okay, maybe this person is no longer reporting any symptoms and, and their clinical examination is back to normal. Um, but actually, we can still see evidence that their their metabolic recovery, in inverted commas, isn't complete. Um, and likewise, some other metrics of, of MRI also, which are, are being looked at to do with uh, the way different parts of the brain sort of work together and communicate. So, and Patrick, is that the difference then on. between, um, sorry to jump in, is that the difference then when we hear about the difference between clinical recovery and physiological recovery, that notion that... Those symptoms yeah. look good on the outside, yeah, but when we do this deeper test, we can see that some of these secondary cascades, there's things going on that are still abnormal. Yeah, totally. And that that's um, there's a lot of, of kind of examples of, of that out there where, you know, the patient's, patient's well again, um, not reporting any symptoms, they're back at school. They're, you know, if you didn't have any extra information, then you'd be saying, okay, let's start your, your return to play. But this thing that we're able to measure still hasn't gone back to your baseline or the population baseline. And at this stage, if you think about the kind of studies you need to do to understand that, at this stage we can say, well, that's really interesting, but it's unclear whether it's important. Um, because almost you need to follow that person up then you say, okay, your your spectroscopy, say, hasn't gone back to normal. Mm-hmm. So we're going to let you go back to sport and we're going to watch and see what happens to you. And we're also going to watch these people whose spectroscopy did go back to normal and we're going to follow, let them return to sport and follow them up and see what happened to them. And so it takes a long time to understand, like, was that a good decision or a bad decision? 
and should we be making should we be kind of giving more weight to those sorts of measures in in clinical situations um but they're they're hard questions to answer absolutely and so you, the best way i can describe it is like you read a paper and you think that's really interesting but i don't know if we know if it's important yet or not yeah and, and on that point around you know, in your experience when working with athletes and having that discrepancy between sort of clinical recovery and and that physiological recovery, are there certain patterns or themes that, that start to emerge, whether it's from symptoms or things that come up in the tests, or is it really just that individual between um, the athlete and the sport and the nature of the injury? Yeah, I think pro- probably the, um, if you think about the clinical situations that come up, uh, more and more now we're looking for things like um, neck, um, like cervical joint position error testing, and uh, assessments of the vestibular ocular system and vestibular ocular function to to help us pinpoint okay if you're having prolonged symptoms then um you know is this a driver and we can use that to treat you and, and to get you better i think what's a little bit less clear is um if you look for those sorts of things in people who've had their acute injury um then they'll, you know, you may well find they're abnormal or that they provoke symptoms. Um, but does that mean that that person would benefit from treating those or from reassessing those until they've gotten better? Um, or actually, is that a person who, were it not for you testing those things, would have gotten back to school and to their sport, you know, without any issue? Mm-hmm. And likewise, you know you you may find that you you start to see some of those things included on your your baseline assessment in in your pre-season and if you find someone has a a deficit or an issue um does that mean that you're not going to let them do contact until until you you've kind of done some remedial work on that or or you're just going to watch that and monitor it that there are there are some difficult questions to answer um and inevitably you've got to be a bit sort of pragmatic with it until the research comes along to to back it up but i think i think there are situations like that where you think okay on this particular balance measure that we don't have a baseline of you're abnormal in inverted commas but what does that mean does that mean that we're never going to let you return to your sport until you've you've got it which may be never Mm -hmm. or are we going to kind of go with the general direction of the other measures that have normalized and, and use that yeah absolutely i mean it's uh, obviously so so tricky to navigate um all, all the subtleties and nuances that, that that come along with it and uh you know in your experience again working with athletes on the recovery side when we look at things um like medications which are used to to treat some of the secondary symptoms that people get from concussions um but of course a lot of those medications have side effects that mimic some of the symptoms of concussion so there's certain you know medications that you might be more um leery of of providing with patients depending on symptoms or other medications that might be you know obviously i appreciate this is very uh individualized to the athlete but you know it's definitely a question that comes up with a lot of the athletes uh, that i see and with practitioners as well um any uh insights there yeah i think i think that um as you say the the most important thing is that it that it's it's individualized to the athlete and the best that we can do i i think in my opinion is to to try and get an idea for each athlete of what's what's 
what are the issues? What, what's the predominant, you know, thing that's driving the symptoms or combination of things that are driving their symptoms? And, and what can we do to address that? Um, and I think in terms of um, the differences in practice that I've seen in different places. So I, I went and spent some time in um, a clinic in North America and there they were much more readily um, using medication for specific types of symptoms. Mm -hmm. um, so, for example, um, adolescent athletes who are struggling to sleep um, w would be given um, melatonin mm -hmm. to, to try and help support that. Or um, if athletes were having migraine type of symptoms, that they were given medication to abort migraines or, or to prevent migraines. And I, th I think that's something that it, in um, other clinics, clinicians are a bit more reluctant to do because there's a feeling that, um, you know, time and, and rest uh, have been um, crucial parts of the treatment previously. And so therefore, probably this is, this is a signal that we need to give a little bit more time. Mm -hmm. But actually, the two can coexist. You know, it, it may be a signal that, yeah, that athlete needs more time but you're probably not doing them any favours by letting them continue to have really troubling symptoms that are making them worry that they're going to have migraines forever or, or really preventing their, them being able to concentrate f for their return to academic work because they, can't, they haven't sort of slept the night before. Mm -hmm. So I, I do think it's important that um, we're not shying away from using medication when it's necessary but definitely that we kind of use it in a, a measured way because like you say there's some some medications we commonly use for things which will have side effects or or actually which are great you know for example migraine is a good example there are lots of medications that are great for migraine but they're not really brilliant for young active people because they do affect their their exercise capacity yeah uh, and it is interesting seeing a kind of trend in in more patients coming in um having tried to do stuff themselves and so cbd is becoming a <laughs> yeah um, i was gonna ask it's the next big uh, say, yeah that, that they that they've used cbd or they've been advised to use cbd um products and um so yeah it's 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 an interesting one i think uh we probably won't see a, a slowing down of that anytime soon and there'll be other things that get added to it i imagine yeah and i mean even before supplements i mean with your experience and in, in, in working in sport and also visiting you know various clinics around the world you know from a nutrition sleep you know some of these recovery modalities you know again are there certain themes that, that tend to crop up of, of modalities that can help people across the board or that tend to be emphasized Hmm. I don't think I don't think there are I don't think there's a consistent approach that I've seen, um, which probably suggests that there's no one treatment which is mm -hmm. hitting the sweet spot in terms of, of uh, affecting it. I mean, definitely inquiring around um, inquiring around sleep, you know, because often athletes won't necessarily report that. So making sure that we inquire how we sleep and is has sleep become a problem. And providing a lot of education um, around, you know, what these symptoms mean and, you know, it's important that they're taken seriously, but not that they kind of become, you know, they take over your life, um, yeah, you know, keep, sure. keeping a kind of balance in terms of what you're doing. And, you know, it's not bad for you to start doing 
um, aerobic exercise that, that doesn't provoke your symptoms. Um, I think those are probably the, the kind of consistent themes. I mean, I've come, come across a few interesting little bits in, in terms of what I've read. Um, so blue light in terms of uh, an aid to um, managing kind of sleep symptoms in, in athletes after concussion has been an interesting one. Mm. And then one that I've, I've, a couple of different people have asked me about um, is exogenous ketones or ketogenic diet. Yeah. Uh, in the management of concussion and it's an intro when i when i looked i looked about a year ago at um what was out there and most of what i could find was um from rat models animal models yeah animal models that that kind of suggested so it's so obviously like there's there's some problems with with um rat models of concussion because you know rats don't have to remember a line out call and, and <laughs> yeah, sure. so at least we're not sure they don't <laughs> yeah at least i don't think they do yeah. um so so you've, you've got some kind of issues there but but basically it looked like some some studies were reporting that exogenous ketones were reducing um the the magnitude of damage um in the brain other studies were showing that was kind of dependent on the age of the rat so some some um rats who were more mature were doing worse off the back of that treatment and the relationship with insulin levels seemed to be important an important factor in in determining whether they got benefit from it or not so it it, it all looked a little bit murky and there wasn't a clear path mm. through to say this is the optimal strategy but i know I've, I've met a couple of athletes who have decided to try it and i think the difficulty is that initially if you know if you've tried to adopt a ketogenic diet you do feel pretty rotten initially um yeah it's a challenge and, and i think that's so you imagine that and also being concussed <laughs> yes. um and that they felt they felt pretty bad but it's it, in terms of the physiology behind it it's an interesting idea um and, and a, a bit of a watch this space in term in terms of um i believe there are some human studies ongoing um that haven't reported their results yet to to look at that yeah, yeah, but I guess a potential role for exogenous ketones and things like that that you, you wouldn't have to adopt a diet to be able to achieve whatever potential benefits could be uh, could be something. And and in terms yeah. of creatine, have you have you seen much around? Uh, you know, we know it can impact some of the glutamate excitotoxicity and some of that calcium influx. There's been a few you know small small studies done, but I'm not sure if that's uh, you know what the body of knowledge really is there on on creatine and concussion. Yeah, so. So just just as a as a kind of follow up to that um, ketones point, sorry. Um, yeah, absolutely, Mark. But just just as a, as a follow on to that, it's it's one of the things around the the kind of physiological concept to it is that uh, the um, the cells in the brain go through a period of metabolic shutdown where they're not able to manage um, glucose because of the the ionic instability that's that's occurred um and so therefore if you give an alternative fuel source and and you know cells in the brain can use glucose or ketones then will that help to um get things going a bit quicker and, and stimulate recovery and and i think um one sort of note of caution to sound is just that i don't think we know whether that's a protective process or or not exactly yeah. um so potentially the metabolic shutdown may actually be um, a protective reason. process 
Um, and I, I, uh, I don't know if it makes sense as an analogy, but if you've got like faulty wiring in your house, then you, you want to wait until the faulty wiring is repaired before you put like a generator through it uh, and set fire to the whole thing. But <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, a good, that's a good that's analogy. <laughs> something that's in my mind as a, as a little addition to it. But nice. Um, so, sorry, in terms of creatine, I haven't actually come across a lot uh, out there, but possibly that might be because in in our study group, we're pretty sure that everyone was taking creatine anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just because of the setting. So, so yeah, no, I haven't come across too much about that, but it, it, it is interesting. Yeah, that one becomes interesting in sort of younger athletes because we see, you know, especially sports like ice hockey, you get a, you know, one 11 or 12 year old when they start to body check that's, you know, five foot 10 and 170 pounds, and another 11 year old who's five foot three and 110 pounds. And, and, you know, so, so with, with younger athletes and taking creatine is obviously something that a lot of coaches and parents, you know, still wonder about the safety effects despite, you know, really robust, uh, well, in adults, robust, uh, you know, research. But, I mean, this is potentially where there could be a benefit, a protective benefit. But, uh, again, not a lot of uh, research done in that uh, cohort. Yeah, and I, and I think in terms of... Um the the general mood and feel there seems to be a real shift towards law changes and trying to modify the game in in youth sport to minimize the occurrence of concussion Mm -hmm. so you've seen efforts to get rid of body checking efforts to limit heading in soccer um some efforts to try and look at modifying the rules in in youth rugby in in france to see whether that will reduce the the rate of concussion injuries so it is it and i think in large part it's because just like you said you've got those imbalance issues um you know chronological age and and biological um, age are moving at different uh, speeds aren't they yeah and, and like within a, a lovely phrase uh, that a, a youth rugby coach said to me he was like it's it's biological age um rate of force development those things but it's also like propensity for violence mm. um there's, there's a big <laughs> yeah. variation in like uh in in behavior yeah absolutely <laughs> between kids in the same age bracket absolutely patrick listen i really appreciate you taking the time out today and, and, and sharing your work and your insights you know leaving this discussion off here in terms of the evolution of, of, you know, your research in this area or the research as a whole, where do you see things going with this sort of acute diagnosis and the ability to be able to pick things, these things up, you know, on the pitch? Yeah, I think that biomarkers and and the technology like that is, is definitely coming. We're getting better, um, looks at which biomarkers are going to be relevant and useful and also the technology to support that being point of care is coming as well um i think at the elite end it's probably going to look like uh integrating that with existing clinical tools and at the the kind of amateur end um hopefully it's going to be uh, a sort of standalone thing that can be used to, to make the sport a lot lot safer um so I I think that's where diagnosis is going, and the exciting thing is that with each biomarker that we evaluate and that we understand the, the role and the function of, we get a better idea about what the pathology is in terms of, of concussion and sport concussion, and that allows us then to um, 
to start to think about, okay, well, can we get more effective treatments and more effective monitoring of when people are going to be safe to return? So I'd say if diagnosis isn't your bag, don't throw out biomarkers um, because they, they could be really exciting for other applications in the field. Amazing. And, and Patrick, do we have to wait until coronavirus is done to get the results of, uh, of the upcoming work or is that uh, where you're at there? Yeah, so like I said, we should have the paper in print um, in not too long. So I'll send you the link when, when we've got it out. Um, so yeah, watch this space, but hopefully not too long. It, it'll be out before coronavirus is over. <laughs> good, yeah, good stuff. Well, listen, Patrick, if people want to you know, stay up to speed with your work and your research, what's the best place to, uh, to connect with you? Uh, yes, yeah, so so I'm on uh, ResearchGate, um, so you can find me there, and uh, I'm a researcher at the University of Birmingham uh, in the UK. So have a look at um, at our team. Uh, the study is badged as the Scrum study, so you'll be able to find some more information out um, out there. But uh, but yeah, probably ResearchGate is the best place. Phenomenal. Listen, really appreciate the time again, and uh, thanks for having me on. No, thank you very much. I really enjoyed it, and I hope I haven't talked too much. Thank you for listening to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this terrific episode. If you did, please share with one or two of your friends or colleagues and support the show by subscribing on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, or your favorite podcasting platform. Until next time. The Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcasts.